morning again. We're going to go ahead and get into the scriptures this morning. So if you find your way back to your seat, we are getting close to the end of our series in Acts, which is uh, always wild to me when we get close to the end of a long uh, book of the Bible series. I really enjoy it. Uh, when you start planning for one, you know, 40, 45 weeks seems basically, might as well be eternity. Uh, seems like a long time. And then you get to the end of it and you're like, wow, that wasn't as long as I thought it was going to be. So we're nearing the end of this series in Acts. We're in week 39. And uh, today we're going to kind of do an overview of basically chapters 23 and 24. Uh, now, 23 and 24 of the book of Acts have a lot to teach us as Christians who are doing what Jesus taught us, which is primarily uh, to seek first the kingdom of God. That's Jesus was all about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Uh, we've said this before, but what got him crucified in the Roman Empire was that he went around saying there is another king besides Caesar. Uh, and that ultimately is what we're saying too. And that's why uh, we can be controversial from time to time because what we are saying is the empires of this world are not the real thing. There's another empire, there's another kingdom that's coming, whose king is coming to rule and reign, and that is uh, confrontational. And so if we prioritize as the primary agenda of God in the world, um, his kingdom, then Acts 23 and 24 have a lot to offer us as we do that. Now, it's not we're not reading an epistle here, so it's a little bit more. You're going to have to do some application yourself. It's not direct uh, you know, it's not a prescription for us. In fact, it's just a description of what was going on in the New Testament, but there is much for us there. And so one of the more apparent things, uh, the truths that we can find in the text we're going to be in today is that we can be at peace even in the midst of very stressful situations that we might find ourselves in because good news, God is in control. Now, I don't mean that in a fatalistic Way, which means that, well, we're just puppets and everything is under God's command. I don't mean that, but at the same time, I do mean that God is sovereign and he is in control. And if you're like, wait a minute, I don't like living in tension. Sorry, that's life, is tension between two realities. And so I'm not sure what stressful situations you found yourself in lately. Well, some of you, I'm sure of what stressful situations, because I know. Uh, but in our text this morning, Paul is basically the object of a terrorist attack, uh, of a assassination scheme. And then he's a defendant in what appears to be an unwinnable court case, like a kangaroo court kind of thing. And so um, the, the theologian and commentator John Stott uh, said that Paul's chances of surviving the attacks of the angry Jews and the powerful Romans resemble that of, quote, a butterfly before a steamroller. So he's in a stressful situation. Uh, and yet what we see is that the Apostle Paul, he remains not only calm, but also bold and courageous in this moment because he has entrusted himself and submitted himself to the sovereign plan and the sovereign power of God, who he refers to specifically Jesus as Lord, which is an important title when you think of the ancient Roman Empire. So we're going to cover a lot of big chunks of scripture today, and we're going to do it in the way that we usually do, which is read and talk and read and talk. Uh, but in our text this morning, uh, we're going to see uh, this thread running through that shows us that we can rest the entire weight of our anxiety, of our concerns, legitimate concerns, right? We can rest the entire weight of that, not on ourselves or not on anyone else or anything else on this earth, but instead in God our Father, who the scripture says 
as the song you might know says, is holding the whole world in his hands. Uh, the scriptures say that Christ is upholding the universe by the power of his word. And so we can rest in that. So if you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 12. Acts chapter 23. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. The book of Acts chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 12. Now, as we get into this, you'll notice something different about verses 12 through 35 here of this chapter. And that is that the names of God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit aren't mentioned at all. Uh, it's kind of a, a notable absence, right? It kind of reminds, if you know your Bible, this might remind you of the book of Esther, if you've ever read that book, where God is not mentioned there, but both here and in Esther, the name of God might be missing, but his fingerprints, his actions, his influence, his power is all over the place in the story. Sometimes we are tempted to think uh, that God is not at work because we can't actively see any visible signs of his sovereignty. But that's a mistake. And here's a mistake to avoid. We, we can never mistake the lack of spectacular uh, action for the inactivity of God. And here's my challenge for you. If you're younger than, say, 40-ish, I want you to go find somebody who's older than 60, who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, and ask them if God is ever at work just kind of in the background in their life. And I guarantee you, if they've been walking with Jesus for a long time, they're going to tell you some stories. And they're going to go, oh yeah, I thought God like forgot about me, but then a decade later, I looked back and went, holy cow, he was at work the whole time. That's my challenge for you. We can never mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. His quiet, invisible hand is always at work. He's always at work. So we're going to be in Acts 23, verses 12 uh, to 22, which picks up the story right where we left off. Jesus has just appeared to Paul uh, and has comforted him at just the right time. That's verse 11 of Acts 23. Jesus appears to Paul, comforts him, and now we pick it up in verse 12 of Acts 23, a plot to kill Paul. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Okay, so the day after Jesus comforts Paul, right? So like, if Jesus appears to you and it comforts you, you're probably expecting to wake up from that sleep like, all right, everything's great. No, that's not what happens here. More than 40 Jews hatch an assassination plot to kill Paul. And we know that they are intending to do this fairly quickly. Why? Because they just went on hunger strike until he's dead. So they're not expecting this to take very long. Uh, they, they said, eat, neither eat or drink. So they're expecting this to be real short uh, if this is going to work. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now notice here, they go to the chief priests and the elders, but notice who they don't go to. They don't go to the Pharisees. Uh, and that's probably because they had recently sided with Paul in this whole confrontation. Verse 15, now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So we have the murder plot here. These 40-something Jews, they go to the religious leaders and they say, religious leaders, we need you to act like you're reconvening to discuss Paul's crimes and when Paul gets close, our assassins are going to intercept him and execute him, right? Like imagine, 
we read this and it's like, oh yeah, crazy story. But imagine this happening in a church. Like a couple of you come, or, or 20 of you are like, hey, we're not eating and drinking until so-and-so is, I was going to say a name there, but that's mean. <laughs> until so-and-so is dead in our church. And they come to, the, to me and the elders and are like, hey, listen, we're not eating or drinking until this person is dead. So here's what we want you to do. Get him to come in to have a meeting with you, and we're going to hide in the, in, the, in the bushes and jump out and kill him. Crazy, right? Nut stuff. And so this is a crazy, evil plan. But here's what's interesting. This plan would actually appeal to Ananias the high priest. Uh, if you were here last week, you might remember that we said that he is known for violence and for uh, basically being unwise and, and, and violent like that. But... God has a different plan, as he often does. And as God often also does, he uses a really unlikely character to carry out his plan. Look at verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now, if you're like me, and this happened a while ago when I was reading back through Acts again, uh, you're like, oh yeah, Paul has a family. Like, we never think about that, but here he has a family. This is the only mention of Paul's family in the New Testament. So now we know for sure that he's got a sister and he has a nephew. Really interesting. 17, Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So remember, centurion is beneath a tribune. There are different levels of officer within Rome. And so he, he says to the centurion, one of the guards, hey, this guy has something to tell your boss. Go take him and let him tell him. So verse 18, he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Now, we don't know exactly how old Paul's nephew here is, but the fact that Lysias, who's the tribune here, takes him by the hand suggests that he's probably a little kid. He's probably a young boy, right? Imagine a young boy coming up to tell you something and you're like, oh, what do you have to tell me? You know, bending over to listen as we do to a little kid. That's the picture we're getting here. 20, and he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of, all of these things. So let's just take a break here, pause here, and kind of marvel at the sovereignty of God. He often uses little things like very young people to accomplish really big missions. There's no burning bush moment here. There's no bright light from the sky. There's not a, a, you know, a disembodied hand writing on the wall like in the Old Testament. That's not what we see. Paul's life is spared. Why? As a result of just people doing the right thing, doing the next right thing that happens to be right in front of them. Paul's life is spared because other Christians did what was right. That's interesting. He used their actions to accomplish this big purpose. So now Lysias immediately responds to the threat, and he hears about, when he hears about it, look at verses 23 to 30. He sends, uh, he, he sends Paul to Felix the governor, verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So what does Lysias do? 
he summons, in order to protect Paul, he summons the centurions to prepare 200 infantrymen, 200 soldiers, foot soldiers, 70 cavalrymen, or, or mounted soldiers, and 200 spearmen, men with spears, right? And so we said this before, but again, this is a reminder that God can and God does use wicked secular governments to achieve his purposes. The Roman Empire was not an empire of morality. It was an empire of power. And yet God is like, yeah, but I'll use that too. As Proverbs 21 reminds us, he turns the hearts of rulers and kings. So when you pray, pray Psalm 21. When you pray for the country or our county or our mayor or whatever governing officials you want to pray for, take Psalm 21 as your lead and pray that he would turn the hearts and the rulers of kings and those in high places. So, in order to bring the governor Felix up to speed on the situation, Lysias writes him a letter in order to, uh, to tell him what's going on. This is what he says in verse 25. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. Now, this is kind of a laughable opening line. Because historically, what we know about Felix is that he is actually a temperamental, violent, and very ineffective governor. He's not a good governor, and yet Lysias is like, Your Excellency, which if somebody is in power above you and you know that they're ineffective and bad and violent, this is how you talk to them, because you got to butter them up. Verse 27, This man was seized, referring to Paul, seized by the Jews, and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, this is interesting too, right? Because if you remember back to the last couple weeks, you might notice Lysias conveniently left out a couple little facts, uh, like the part where he thought Paul was an Egyptian revolutionary and almost had Paul, who was a Roman citizen, flogged illegally. He kind of like, oh, forgot about that. Considering, again, that Felix is known to be a violent ruler, this is probably a good call. 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So now Lysias is explaining to Felix that Paul is innocent and that the problems people were having with him were basically a theological dispute. That he's not actually breaking any Roman laws, they're just, he's breaking their temple laws and their religious stuff. And so it's interesting that Luke is able to weave in here, right? I don't know if you noticed this, but he was able to weave in here uh, an important reality, which is that Christians are not dangerous lawbreakers, which is what they were accused of being in the Roman Empire. There are traditions within Christianity that when they take communion, they will say, the doors, the doors, and that is a leftover from a time in the Roman Empire when only those who were believers would be allowed to be in the room during communion because spies would come in to accuse the church of being cannibals. And so they kicked anybody out who was not a member and said, close the doors, because this is the way that the church was thought of, the way it was thought of in this time. So don't miss this little application here. When you're reading a book like Acts, you have to find these little application nuggets Christians should be honorable citizens. We should be honorable citizens in our countries. When the laws of the land don't hinder us from living out our faith, and I know that we had a lot of discussion about that over the last few years, right? When the laws of the land don't hinder us from living out our faith, we should abide by the rule of law and be model citizens. 
In a couple of his letters later in the New Testament, Paul actually writes about this, telling his readers what? To live quiet, peaceful lives. Inasmuch as it's up to you, live quiet and peaceful lives. Listen, we are not called to be troublemakers for the sake of being troublemakers. That is not our call as Christians. We are not called to create problems. We aren't. We are called to be honorable citizens, but whose ultimate loyalty lies with another kingdom and not with the kingdoms of this world. We're to be honorable citizens. Remember, what, what, what are we called? We're called ambassadors. When an ambassador goes into another kingdom or goes into another country and causes all kinds of problems, that's not good. Instead, ambassadors, when they do a good job, are model citizens in that foreign country, and yet... Bring with them the values of their country, their kingdom. That's what we are. So we're not called to be anything but honorable citizens, but whose loyalty is ultimately with the kingdom of heaven and not the empires of this world. Let's go, keep going. Verse 30. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So under the cover of night, the soldiers took, take Paul to Antipatris. The 70 horsemen then ride onward with Paul to Caesarea. 33. When they had come to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay, so even though as history teaches us, Felix is a ruthless, corrupt, and pretty much an incompetent uh, leader, he at least starts out here the right way. He at least is following the rules here, and he promises to hear Paul's case as soon as his accusers arrive from Jerusalem. So let's do a little recap, because there's a lot of facts, right? Some Jews come up with a plan to assassinate Paul, right? However, the plan is thwarted by Paul's nephew, who reports this plan to Lysias. Lysias has soldiers escort Paul to Felix, who has now agreed to hear the case. And so here we come to chapter 24, where we read of a pretty typical court case. A lot of the methods here are pretty similar to what we find today. You see the filing of charges, the accusation from a spokesperson for the plaintiff, right? In our world, that would be like the, um, the, the district attorney, the prosecutor. And then you have an answer from the defendant, who in this case is representing himself. And so after hearing the arguments, normally in this setup, the judge would render a verdict pretty quickly but this case has a few unique twists to it that are connected to the gospel. So here we are into Acts 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So the accusers are taking this very serious. They really want this to happen. They, they bring in a big gun, if you will. They hire a professional uh, orator, a professional lawyer, basically. Maybe the best one that money could buy at the time. Remember, these are religious leaders. They have access to a lot of money, and apparently they're corrupt about it. So probably the best that money could buy. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, O most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Again, buttering up Felix. 
But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Now, this is or, or, oration skill here. Tertullus opens by expressing thanks to Felix, the most excellent, and he even highlights the peace that they're experiencing under Felix, which, as we said, could not have been further from the truth. They're not really experiencing this. He just wants to get what he wants out of Felix. His reign, Felix's reign, was actually marked by a lot of unrest, a lot of violence, but Tertullus, smart guy, savvy guy, skilled attorney, knew that peace is a very significant Roman value, right? You may have heard of the Pax Romana, Roman peace. That's a very core value to the Roman Empire. Now, it's not really peace. It's really more like oppression and fear that leads to nobody wanting to start a revolt, but they valued what they thought of as peace, and he commends Felix for bringing it. So after he flatters Felix, Tertullus now proceeds in verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Okay, that's a reference to Christianity, the sect of the Nazarenes. What's the first charge against Paul? He's a pest. You're a public nuisance. You're a plague. You literally infect people. You're a pandemic, right? Like, <laughs> that's what he's saying. The second charge here is that he is a political agitator. Paul, you stir up riots wherever you go. Now, there's kind of a little sliver of truth there, right? Riots do seem to follow Paul, but it's not because Paul is stirring up riots. In actuality, it's the enemies of Paul who follow him around and stir up the riots. Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And, and again, they love charging him with this, and there's no proof. They have no proof of him profaning the temple, but this, they just like to throw that on there. Verse 8. Now, you may notice that it jumps from verse 6 to verse 8. That's a whole conversation we can have later. There's differing manuscripts. Really interesting stuff. I'm just going to let it hang there. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Some of you are like, wait a minute, what? And that's my whole game is to get you to look into it. The tense court scene is set here, right? This is an intense situation. There's been some wild accusations against Paul, and now he's given a chance to respond. This is what's supposed to happen. Uh, but I love the example we have here from Paul of being calm and yet bold and courageous. Like Paul doesn't lose his cool. Well, what does it look like to be a faithful witness of the gospel? It looks a lot like Jesus, and it looks a lot like Paul here. And so verses 10 to 21, Paul is going to seize this opportunity, right? I mean, imagine where he is. He's in this high, he's in front of this really powerful person who is asking him to give a defense for himself. And Paul's like, all right, I'm going to seize the opportunity to not only give a, a public witness of his own innocence, but also he's going to weave the gospel in there. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, notice Paul doesn't lie to him. He doesn't butter him up. He doesn't say, and you've been a great leader for many nations. He just says, hey, you've been here for a long time, and I'm glad to make my defense to you. Verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 
And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So he gets straight to the point, right? He says, look, it's only been 12 days, and it's pretty difficult in Paul's day to incite a riot in under two weeks, right? And then Paul points to the obvious, and he uses logic. They can't even prove the charges they have on me. So this, again, is an example that... Like as Christians, sometimes people teach that we're not like, oh, you can never defend yourself. No, that's not true. Here Paul is defending himself, right? But now Paul makes a shift here, and don't miss this. This is really, really incredible. Verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, now that's the the verbiage for Christianity. According to the way, which they call a sect, remember they called it a Nazarene sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. So what does Paul claim? He claims a few things. He claims not only to be innocent, but he also claims that he actually has a faith that's in accord with the fundamental outlook in Judaism, a belief in God, a trust in the scriptures, a belief in future judgment, a belief in the importance of holiness. Paul is essentially saying, look, my conscience is clear. I live my best to to live with a clean conscience. I'm not hiding anything from anyone. I'm out in the light. I'm honest with God and I'm honest with the people around me. So before we keep going, let's ask a question here, right? Are we living with a clear conscience towards God and towards others? Are we, you know, we we hear that a lot. Are you right with God? But it's a good question. Are you right before God? Or are there things that are unconfessed in your life? Are there things that you're trying to hide in the shadows of your life that you're pretending is not a problem but actually is a problem which is keeping you from being the thing that you're trying to look like you are, which is holy. Right? Many of us want to look mature so we deceive ourselves and others which is actually keeping us from actually being mature and we walk around knowing that at any moment the skeleton could fall out of the closet and we'd be found out. Paul is like, I don't, the closet's open. I don't have any skeletons. Look in there. You, you couldn't walk up to Paul and say, guess what I found out and him have some kind of fear. Because everybody that needed to know knew. Are you living that way? What would it be like for you today to pray this way? God, if there is anything in me that's not pleasing to you, reveal it. Anything in my thoughts, my desires, my actions, my life right now that is not glorifying to you and therefore edifying to me, Lord, bring it to the light so that it can be cleansed, purified. I want to be holy. I want to live a clean and conscious life. I want to have a clean conscience towards you and towards others. And before we move on, also got to be careful here because this is not about your effort in cleaning yourself up. It's about your ability to surrender to the effort of Jesus that has already cleaned you up. I want you to take note of Paul's seamless transition here into his Christian faith. This is so good. It's a, it's a really good reminder of, for us to look for ways in your daily conversations to make these kind of gospel transitions as you talk with people. And please don't hear me saying that you should do a bait and switch with people. I hate that. I do not like that. I don't want you to do that. That's not what we think of when we think of biblical evangelism. But Paul is also not hiding the reality of who he is. 
If you're a Christian, Jesus is all over your life, right? Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So he's giving his version of the story here. Tells Felix, hey, I brought charitable gifts to Jerusalem in 18. While I was doing this, they found me, notice he says, purified in the temple, not unpure, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Notice what he says. I was in the temple. I was pure. There was no riot, but there were some Jews from Asia who, by the way, where are they to make their accusation? Verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So he just is like, hey, all the other things about me are false, but here's what they have against me. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. So he just flipped it around and just spoke the gospel in front of Felix. See that? He just brings up the resurrection of Jesus in this context. Verse 22. And I wish this is what it said. And Felix repented and believed the gospel and was baptized. But that's not what it says. Because that's not always the reality of life. 22. But Felix, having a rather acute knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And it never says whether Lysias came or not. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Paul is treated in a manner consistent with his Roman citizenship. Friends could visit him and bring him food. He's kind of like on house arrest. 24, and after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Felix, probably, I'm guessing, under the influence of his wife, Drusilla, who, by the way, is actually his third wife. She apparently divorced her husband to marry Felix. Big scandal. Uh, But that's another story. Anyways, Felix sends for Paul to hear him speak about Jesus. Right? I mean, golden opportunity on on golden opportunity here. Uh, If you're imprisoned and the, the, the governor of an entire province goes, hey, I want you to come tell me about this Jesus gospel thing. Amazing opportunity. Verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now, what is Paul highlighting here? We said these things in the creed earlier. Paul highlights God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and the judgment that is coming. Paul was showing Felix why why Felix needed Jesus. And note here that Paul's sermon is not like a self-help talk. It's not a nice, warm, uplifting talk. It involves gospel confrontation with a call to repentance. None of these points are popular then, and none of these points will always be popular today. And this is why the gospel message has been and always will have a thread of confrontation to our own sinful desire desire to be our own ruler. Ultimately, what is at the heart of all of our sin and our rebellion against God? We like to sit on the throne of our own life. We like to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and God, yeah, I guess that's cool if you want to be around too. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I'm Lord. I'm king. And I want to bring you into my kingdom, and in order to do that, I'm going to lower myself all the way down to the death of a thief on a cross and bring you in so that you can live in my kingdom and see me as Lord. So our call is to speak his word in humility and in love as a faithful 
messenger. I had this uh, a similar conversation like this with somebody the other day on a playground sitting on a bench waiting for our kids. And I had this conversation. And it, I wasn't angry and he wasn't angry, but we talked about sin and judgment and who Jesus is. So how did Felix respond to Paul's sermon? Again, I wish it was, and he was baptized right then. But verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. Now, I wonder if you've ever had somebody basically have respond this way. You share the gospel and they're like, man, get out of here. I don't want to hear this. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So he rejects the message. And Felix is convicted of sin, right? He's He's like alarmed about the sin judgment part, but he's not transformed. He's not changed. He hasn't gone all the way to submitting himself to Jesus. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money, that, that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So we see his, his bad faith motives here. He continues to call for Paul, but he's more interested in greed than in God, right? He, he was looking for a bribe from the Apostle Paul. He cared more about his own career and money than salvation through Jesus. So for us, it's a lesson to say, let we, man, don't be like Felix. Don't treat the gospel and the message of Jesus as a way for you to get to something else that you really want, which in this case is money and power and claim, right? Jesus is not the path for you to get the thing you really want. It's not come to Jesus and, and then have a great marriage or be a great parent or have a great life because Jesus is the end. He's not the means. You might come to Jesus and still have a rough marriage, but you have Jesus. So don't be like Felix. Repent, trust in Jesus. Verse 27. When two years had elapsed... Right? Not two weeks, two years. It's a long time. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So, should Paul have been released? Absolutely, yes. But that would have upset the Jews, and Felix apparently feared man more than he fears God, and so he doesn't want to do it. And many scholars believe that it was during this two year span that Luke wrote the book of Luke and wrote the book of Acts that were. Reading now. So at the end of chapter 24, we see yet another illustration of God being in control, even when we're going through trials. And so if you find yourself, like Paul, in a perplexing season, take comfort in this. God has not forgotten you. He can't forget. Paul sat in prison for two years, but God was at work. God didn't turn around and be like, oh my gosh, I forgot about you, Paul. That's not how this works. God was at work. And so may we, like Paul, look for every opportunity to share the gospel with whoever God puts in front of us at any given time, even if we know their motives are not really there to hear it, because we believe that God can do what God does. And so we just do the next right thing that's in front of us, share the gospel, humbly share the word of the gospel with people. And so this is my prayer for us, that we would be like Paul, we would look for those opportunities, and that we would remain calm and bold at the same time, even in the midst of these really, really stressful situations, maybe long-term stressful situations that we find ourselves in because why? God is with us and he's in control and he loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for, again, these stories. We thank you for our kids. 
who we get to share these kind of stories with, and we thank you for the opportunity to share the gospel with them and with everyone else in our lives. And uh, Lord, we just, as we think about a, a new kind of season starting here, the fall and the kickoff and school and all that that means for all of us, whether we have kids in our house or not, Lord, would you give us um, the, the boldness to look for those opportunities to build relationships in this season where everybody's kind of back into the swing of things after summer break and we might have more opportunity to share the gospel with people um, by our lives, yes, but also by our words when given the opportunity. We ask you to bless the rest of our morning uh, today and that we'd go out from here and be salt and light. Amen.